What is it? It's your future. It's called a Stargate. Chevron 7 locked. Welcome to Walking Through the Stargate. I'm Brent. And I'm Zach. This is episode 46, and we're going to be talking about the episode, Stargate SG-1's episode, Learning Curve. Uh, learning Curve. And I'm going blind without my show notes because I was a jerk this morning, and I was saying to Zach, Zach, we have to be timely. I have a thing that I have to do. And he's like, awesome, I'll be ready. And then guess who Guess who wasn't ready? Yeah. Um, it well, was this guy. Hooray. It's okay, Britt. I'll, I'll, I'll catch up there. So you can find us on Google Play hey, Podcasts nice. and on uh-huh. Apple Podcasts. And when you find us, go ahead and hit that five-star rating on there. <laughs> uh, give us a review that really helps other people find us. If you think this is a fun podcast and worthwhile, please, please do that. That helps other people find us as well. Yeah. You can also find us on Spotify Podcast in there. Just hit that little heart button that says <laughs> we're a great thing and you love us. <laughs> so after yeah. they have done all of that, Brent, how yes. can they get a hold of us and tell us what they have done? <laughs> well, Zach, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> I'm waiting for this. This will be fun. <laughs> oh, boy. So, Zach, when people have found us and they want to let us know, they can do that by the easiest way to do that that we think is the easiest way is that they can email us. And they can email us at walkingthroughthestargate at gmail.com. <clears throat> That's W-A-L-K-I-N-G-T-H-R-O-U-G-H-T-T-H-E-S. Oh, oh you were so close. <laughs> I got through the mogul and then I just... Okay, let me try it one more time. They can do that at W-A-L-K-I-N-G-T-H-R-O-U-G-H-T-T-H-E-S-T-A-R-G-A-T-E at Gmail. Wow, Zach, you are really good at that. You are supremely good at blowing through that email address. Well, I've practiced. I guess so. Okay, so you can do it by emailing us at walkingthroughthestargate at gmail.com. It's spelled precisely how it's supposed to be. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter uh, at Stargate Walking. uh, And uh, thanks to the folks that are uh, following us on Twitter. And there's not not a lot going on because it's my responsibility and I'm still kind of basically getting out from under the chaos that's the start of a school year and uh they can also find us on facebook we have a walking through the stargate facebook group which is where all the awesome stuff usually happens we have a walking through the stargate facebook page which is like necessary for good st- i don't know whatever zach does the facebooky stuff and uh yeah i'm not very so, good at that either i try but so yeah that's how people can find us so yeah, yeah. Little little role reversal there. Wow. W A L P I N G T H R O U G H T E G H. No, boy, that is tough. It's the G H T H E. G H T H E. G H T H E. That's it. W A L K I N G T H R O U G H T H G H G S T A G A T E at gmail.com. Yeah, something like that. Did I get it? All right, good. No, no, you didn't, but that's okay. Anyway, let's dig into this episode, shall we, Bruce? Yes, please. Let's do this. So, learning curve was directed by Martin Wood. He's done a whole ton of stuff. I'm not going to talk about him a whole lot. You can go listen to our other podcasts and find out more about Martin Wood. He's awesome. The teleplay, however, is written by Heather E. Ash. And this is Heather's first of five writing credits over the next three seasons. Mm-hmm. Her filmography is basically limited to just SG-1 stuff. She was the story editor for 18 episodes on season three. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe this is her first episode as a story editor. Um, 
but she did do uh, a couple of uh, episodes. She wrote an episode of Glory Days in 2002, and she mm-hmm. was an associate producer on Bounty, which was a 17-minute black-and-white short, also in 2002. Bounty, mm-hmm. he, this is just interesting. For okay. the past seven years, Mel Bishop, a cold-blooded out, Old West outlaw, has rotted away in a filthy Mexican prison. Mm-hmm. He survived only by holding on to his dream of revenge against Maddie, the man he believes betrayed him. <laughs> now, escaped from prison, prison, Mel begins his quest for vengeance, but mm-hmm. he doesn't find the revenge he seeks. Instead, he finds salvation. Oh, so, I see. There's that 17-minute uh, black and white short. Yeah, okay. Um, that's what I was able to find about Heather E. Ash. Uh, she does have a Twitter page that, uh, last I can check, she didn't, hasn't posted anything since like 2013, so. <laughs> Who well, knows? that's a bit of a shame. Yeah. Um, was, but we yeah. do get a few more episodes by her, so good. that's a good thing. Uh, we do have a few guest actors worth noting, in addition mm-hmm. to uh, Terrell Rothery, who plays uh, Frasier. She's hardly a guest actor anymore, although... I know, I was just thinking that myself. Um, but we do have really Andrew Airely, who plays Kalen. He's got a huge career that spans from the early 90s to today. Uh, we will see him again in a future episode of Stargate, but as a different character. Mm, gotcha. Uh, so this is the end of Kalen. Uh, Britt Irvin plays Marin. Uh, her career begins in the mid-90s as a child actor and continues through to today. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the uh, trivia bits that I have here is that Brittany Andrew Irvin and Andrew Airely would later appear together in a TV movie, in t- several TV movies, including Personally Yours and Wasted and Jack. Mm, gotcha. uh, I think that's three. Personally Yours, yes. Wasted, and Jack. Gotcha. Um, also, Brittany Irvin, uh, you see her again with Michael Shanks later in Smallville. There is a hmm. series of episodes uh, called Absolute Justice, where they're talking about the Justice Society, and uh, uh, Michael Shanks plays Hawkman in that, and uh, Irvin plays Stargirl. Gotcha. That That's happens cool. about 10 years after this episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so that's Brittany. Uh, Lachlan Murdoch plays Toman. And now when I Googled Lachlan Murdoch, the first thing I popped up was uh, Lachlan Keith Murdoch, who is the executive chairman of Nova Entertainment and co-chairman of News Corp and an executive chairman and CEO of the Fox Corporation. So he's one of those Murdochs. Oh, gotcha. But that's not this that's Lachlan not our, Murdoch. That's not our Lachlan Murdoch? Okay, all right. <laughs> and so when I searched Lachlan Murdoch actor... I got his Wikipedia page, and the first thing he says, it says is, don't confuse him with this other guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, keep it straight, dude. Yep, absolutely. Uh, he also began his acting career in the mid-90s. Uh, he's apparently best known for playing Constable Henry Higgins on Murdoch Mysteries. Hmm. Uh, I'm not terribly fr- I've heard of that, but I don't really know anything about it. So his name is Murdoch, and he was playing in a television show called Murdoch Mysteries, but he was not playing anybody named Murdoch. That's my understanding of things, yes. That's ironic. Yes. Don't you think? Uh, absolutely. It's like rain on your wedding day. Why is it's rain the on free your wedding ride. day? It's, it's like the free ride that you just didn't take. Oh. Oh, no, no that's in it. It's the, it's the free ride when you're already late. That's it. That's, that's... Sorry, I'm quoting some Alanis Morissette. Sorry. Carry on. 
Are you having fun? I'm eating oatmeal. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. So I will uh, keep talking while he eats. Mm-hmm. Uh, the original air date for Learning Curve is, uh, was July 23, 1999. Number one in the U.S. was Wild Wild West by Will Wild Smith. Wild Wild West. Featuring, nice. featuring Drew Hill in Cool Moody. Uh, in the UK, they were listening to Live in the Vida Loca by Ricky Martin. I promise I will not uh, keep jamming Live in the Vida Loca in our episodes. All right. Well, what about Wild Wild West? They kind of that's that, that bouncy. You know, anyway. Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, in the box office for the movies, uh, number one was The Haunting, number two, Inspector Gadget, number three, American Pie, number four, Eyes Wide Shut, and number five, Big Daddy. Mm-hmm. So uh, there you go, movies. Yeah. Uh, what happened around this time? On the 22nd, day before this episode aired, Woodstock 99 Music Festival begins at Griffiths Park uh, in New York. Yeah. It goes until the twenty mm-hmm. fifth, attended by about two hundred thousand, and it ends due to violence. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. So uh, that was happening right at this time. Uh, also mm-hmm. on the twenty second, Martin Cor- Cor- Martin Scorsese uh, mm-hmm. weds Helen Morris in New York, so he gets married. Woohoo! Go Martin! Yay! Congratulations! On the twenty third. Crown Prince Mohammed ben Al Hassan is crowned King Mohammed the sixth of Morocco on the death of his father. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, it was the twenty third where his father died, so they did not waste anything on getting him crowned. Long live the king! There you go. And the twenty third, ANA Flight sixty one is hijacked in Tokyo, Japan, uh, and I did not get the chance to know anything more about that uh, than that. So I don't remember that. I don't remember that either. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't get a chance to Google it. A couple days later, on the 25th, the 86th Tour de France begins, or ends, I'm not certain. Lance Armstrong wins his first of seven consecutive Tour de France titles. <laughs> but then is later disqualified, and all yep. of his titles are taken away <laughs> because he was found cheating with drugs. Uh, yeah, yeah. Bad man. Bad, bad. Oh, I tell you what. <clears throat> I mean, there's... <sighs> There is a really weird uh, moral ambiguity in the concept of technology and uh, athletics because you can, you know, you can put on lighter shoes and you can get grippier insole. You know, you can, you can, you can get a lighter bike frame. You can get a helmet that it helps you be more aerodynamic. But, uh, but technology that alters the body physiologically is 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 is, is a bridge too far. Which I, I mean, I'm not here to, I'm not here to justify. I'm just acknowledging that these things are okay and those things are not, and it's well, you know what? I guess it's fitting for our episode here, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It's kind of appropriate <laughs> for that. Uh, you know, I mean, on one level, um, in in a theoretical world, to add uh, technology uh, to the body that doesn't physically enhance the body. Um, like what, you know, if, if you were all of a sudden to put, uh, bionic legs on or some mm-hmm. sort of, uh, external, uh, exoskeleton that would strengthen your legs, that would not be allowed on the Tour de France. That would totally be disqualified. Mm-hmm. Um, but shoes that have a slightly grippier grip so that you don't slip, um, you know, 
uh, I think there's a degree there um, and an implied uh, level uh, playing field is what they're going for. Uh, yeah. You can argue whether or not having a grip of your shoe is actually a leather, leather uh, level playing field. Um, I mean, but, I think that that's my point is that yeah. the line is so thin, so thin, because on you know if if the goal is to see what a human body can do, uh, well then the answer is we're not sure because there's this whole aspect of of tinkering that we say is unallowable. And again, trust me, by no means am I sitting here like with a secret agenda to try to to uh, justify like doping in athletics. Um, I just I just find it interesting. This is it's it's a peculiar thing for, for and people die on that hill, man. They they get up on that thing and they are very absolute with their uh, with their uh, 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 with their ethics on the thing, saying that this is completely unacceptable. Um, it, it, I, I, that's it. That's my story. All right. Uh, well, maybe we'll talk more about that as this episode continues. Sure. Uh, do you have a couple of trivia things for you for this episode, or at least? Mm-hmm. Interesting facts. Uh, the elementary school that Jack O'Neill takes Marin uh, to is Ecole Inman Elementary in Burnaby, B.C. Mm-hmm. Um, also, we never find out uh, what the mural under the DHD shows or why the people were freed. Yeah. Uh, that kind of just gets uh, left behind in the midst of the storytelling, which I actually think is cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't have a problem with that um, because the rest of the story is, quite frankly, really strong. Uh, mm-hmm. I do have a couple of notes about uh, the episode from The Illustrated Companion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Heather Ash uh, says this was her first foray into writing Stargate. Uh, this was the script that, uh, you know, she was a freelance scriptwriter and she turned this in and it was accepted with very little, if any, uh, rewrites which mm-hmm. is really impressive. Um, yeah, no kidding. And uh, she really loves this episode. Um, the final scene where O'Neill and Marin are coloring on the, uh, the wall together, that's mm-hmm. mostly ad-libbed, mm-hmm. um, and that mm-hmm. made Ash cry when she was watching that, or get teary-eyed, which, which is a good scene. Um, yeah. So the, also the name of the uh, school teacher. Christine Strubble, or Mrs. Strubble, is named after uh, Ash's actual second grade teacher, which is kind of fun. Oh, nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tapping, Amanda Tapping, uh, really enjoyed this episode. She loves the, uh, the ethical questions that this poses. Um, and that mm-hmm. whole line about half the, thing, uh, half the things uh, in my life, the best things in my life didn't happen until after I was 15. <laughs> uh, <laughs> The line, the original line was written a little bit differently, and she tweaked it uh, to include her own personal observation uh, as mm-hmm. Amanda, and they kept it in. And she loves that scene, and I love it too. Yeah. Uh, so that's a couple of things from the Illustrated Companion. Mm-hmm. And uh, so a couple of the, the uh, other languages in French, it's learning methods. In Czech, it's accelerated learning. <laughs> and in Hungarian, it's evolutionary curve. Uh, so, okay. and then uh, Russian, it's learning cycle. A mm-hmm. um, couple of goofs in this one. Uh, I'll go with one that's less exciting. Uh, when examining the mural under the DHD, Dr. Jackson 
slides a piece of stone across the mural, which an archaeologist would never do because that would <laughs> do a lot of potential damage to the sure. archaeological evidence that you're working with. Uh, sure. So bad Daniel, bad Daniel. Well, uh, unseen was uh, earlier when Daniel determined that the material that was used for the mural was an, of, of a peculiarly hardened substance. It was it was quite safe. Oh, oh okay. All right. <laughs> uh, I rescind the goof. <laughs> and then uh, Marin... Uh, tells O'Neill that she needs 15 sheets of paper at least 48 centimeters by 23 centimeters. Mm-hmm. And then a little while later, after Carter wakes up, she repeats that again. She says, I need 15 sheets of paper at least 43 centimeters by 28 centimeters. Oh. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so you know. she got those two things swapped around a little bit, the, the, the last two digits. Uh, yeah. What's interesting is that in the Czech version, when they dub it over for the Czech, they mm-hmm. actually corrected that so that the voice of Marin says 48 centimeters by 23 centimeters both times. Do Then I wonder, did they leave the error in for the other dubs? Uh, uh, right? I, I guess, don't know. right? I mean, who knows, right? That's a curious thing. Whatever. Uh, since I don't speak any of the languages that this has been dubbed into, um, I can't speak to that. You can't speak to that? No. Totally fine. Yep. All right, let's dig into the synopsis. Wow, yes, we're just flying please. through this, Brent. Well, you know, honestly, I think that we have to because I got a feeling that you and I are going to start talking about this thing, and it's it's going to go deep. Yep. All right, here we go. Here's the synopsis. Right, let's do it. This is uh, from Stargate Command Wiki. I tweaked it a couple times here and there, but mostly I left it alone. Mm-hmm. Stargate Command is participating in an exchange of information and technology. The SGC has made contact with another world, Orban. The Orbanians are more technologically advanced than Earth, but know little of the Stargate or Guawuld. Mm-hmm. The SGC provides them knowledge of both in exchange for Naquita generator technology. Tilk and Daniel remain on Orban while Sam and Jack return to Earth. Tilk relates all his knowledge of the Guawuld to a boy named Toman, who is Uron, an Orbanian or apprentice type. Uh, Daniel works with other Uron who investigate the ancient temple where the Orbanian Stargate was discovered. On Earth, Kalen, the Orbanian liaison, and an Uron girl, Marin, present Sam with a Nakwada generator, and Marin remains behind to explain the generator technology to Sam. On Orban, Daniel realizes the Orbanians are not actually of Aztec origin, but Teotihuacan descent, and theorizes that the arrival of the Guawuld caused Teotihuacan's downfall on Earth. Daniel mm-hmm. is directed by Kalen then to explain this to Toman. Back on Earth, Sam is having trouble understanding Marin's explanation of the generator technology. She attempts to have Marin simplify her explanations, but Dr. Frazier interrupts and asks to conduct follow-up tests on Marin. When the tests are complete, Frazier calls a meeting with General Hammond, Jack, Sam, and she explains that she has discovered Marin has nanites in her bloodstream and in her brain, which is superseding her normal brain synapses. General Hammond quickly begins preparing for a crisis, but Marin explains that the nanites were designed on Orban, that all Orbanians carry them as a means to gather information, and that each Uron is given millions of nanites to assist them in learning large amounts of information very, very quickly. 
accounting for the high intelligence of the Uron children that has been observed. Marin also tells the group that each Uron must undergo the Avarium, and that at each Avarium all the Orbanians are given one nanite, but does not explain any further. General Hammond is mollified and allows Carter to continue studying the Nakwita generator with Marin's help. The next morning, on Orban, Daniel recovers evidence of Gould occupation, and Kalen gives Daniel more tools to continue excavation. Kalen also directs Teal'c to teach a new Uron boy, Solon, of methods to combat the Gould. Teal'c asks to teach Toman instead, but Kalen tells Teal'c that he is unavailable. Teal'c and Daniel point out that Toman is already familiar with the subject, but Kalen insists it is impossible as Toman has undergone the Avarium, and Teal'c demands to see Toman. Kalen takes Teal'c and Daniel to see Toman, but Toman does not respond or interact with them. Teal'c asks Kalen to explain the Avarium, and Kalen tells him that an Avarium is a ceremony where an Uron's Danites are removed and dispersed among the population to increase the Orbanians' knowledge. Daniel asks Kalen what will happen to Toman, and Kalen replies that he will remain with the other past Uron in an institution, as he cannot be taught because his brain will reject new Nanites. Daniel asks if it has been attempted to teach Uron children without nanites, but Kalen appears confused. Tilk returns to Earth and tells General Hammond what he has learned. Fraser hypothesizes that as nanites replace natural synapses in the brain, the avarium reverts and Uron's mind back to an infant state. As Marin will be required to undergo the avarium when she returns to Orban, SG-1 and General Hammond attempt to have the Orbanians not remove Marin's nanites in an attempt to retain her personality. The Orbanians, however, refuse, and Marin does not accept the offer, the offer of amnesty. Daniel, who remained on Orban, prevents Kalin from attempting to travel to Earth without first sending an IDC, but Kalin insists he must retrieve Marin as without her, the Orbanian scientists waiting for her nanites will be forced to wait another 12 years as another Uron is chosen to specialize in Nakwita generators. Daniel realizes the effect that withholding Marin is having and takes Kalen to the SGC with him. General Hammond agrees to allow Marin to return to Orban and undergo the Avarium, but Jack intervenes and takes Marin from the base without permission. Jack takes Marin to a nearby school, and the teacher allows her to participate in an art class, where the students are asked to paint something they love. Marin, displaying a characteristic of the Orbanians, struggles with the concept of fun, and begins to paint a Nakwita generator. Jack gives Marin a new sheet of paper to paint on, and directs her to paint the flowers in Samantha Carter's lab. Marin struggles with this task as well as Jack attempts to break her mindset mindset of being of, by asking her to paint a garden without the correct colors or with the correct brushes to paint fine lines. Eventually, Marin comprehends the task and enjoys painting, thanking Jack for giving her the opportunity to learn. Jack offers her amnesty again, but Marin insists she must return to Orban and undergo the avarium to help her people. Jack takes Marin back to the SGC and gives her a box of crayons before she returns to Orban. General Hammond threatens to court-martial Jack, but he merely replies 
that he was giving Marin a chance to be a normal child and will accept any punishment General Hammond decides to give him. Several days later, Kalin asks SG-1 to return to Orban, and SG-1 is taken to the institution for past Uron. The institution is now filled with children playing, rather than sitting around in an infant state, and SG-1 is informed that all past Uron children will now learn without nanites after their avarium, as a result of changes that Marin has brought about. The End The End So, Brent, mm-hmm. learning curve, mm-hmm. what'd you think? So, after watching this episode and knowing that I was going to be talking with you about it, I decided that I needed to uh, pull up a couple of things that I, uh, that I was immediately reminded of after the conclusion of watching this episode. Okay. So I'm going to set it up with a bit of a story. When I was in college, I was taking a, uh, a film class, <clears throat> and uh, one of the films that we watched was uh, uh, Blue in the Three Colors trilogy that this um, uh, Polish uh, director, I think, uh, uh, created. Uh, I wrote down his name. Uh, I'm going to butcher it, though. It's Krzysztof. I know that part. And it's uh, Kolos- Kolowski, I think. It doesn't matter. It's a really good film. But... Uh, the reason why I think that it is a really good film is because uh, it's about two and a half hours long, and you start the movie in uh, a very depressing moment, a very depressing scene, uh, and you uh, engage with the story in that very emotional down point. And then for two and a half hours, it gets worse. Oh. And your emotion gets dragged further and further down uh, at moments where you think there's a little bit of a turn up and then it pulls you back down again. And it's two and a half hours. And by the end of it, there is no upturn. Uh, at least not as I remember it. And so, you know, caveat, uh, I am indeed recalling this movie and my emotional connection with it uh, from ages ago. So, you know, I, I might have some of the details wrong, but the, the experience though stuck with me. And, um, that was a moment when I was realizing that I wasn't for a minute paying attention to the lighting, to the pacing, to the, uh, shot angles, to the camera lens use, to the, you know, I was taking a course on film appreciation and a big piece of that is talking about the technology behind making a film. So you're learning these things as you're watching film. And here I was for a two and a half hour story, completely engrossed in the story to the point that it took me on this emotional journey that I didn't want to go on. But I, but I, but, but there was no part in that whole thing where I said to myself, oh, I just, you know, just a movie or, oh, that was a funny shot or, you know what I mean? Like there was nothing that popped me out of it. I was in it the entire time, even though it was a negative emotional experience. I, I state that as one of the best films I've ever seen precisely because it took me on that journey. Uh, And then there was a short story that I read recently uh, by N.K. Jemison, a science fiction and fantasy author who, in my opinion, is probably one of the best science fiction authors today, for sure. Maybe ever. Um, and she wrote a story called The Ones Who Stay and Fight. And uh, it's, uh, I was reading an article about it, how it's, it's described as a bit of a Rorschach test, uh, where you read it and it's so well written from the point of view of a society that isn't Earth, who is observing Earth, and their society looks at our um, value of individualism as uh, 
uh, a core problem, uh, a mm. core aspect of our suffering. And if their society views individualism as uh, almost a disease. And so folks who are studying our culture and then who start to take on too much of that individualistic quality are removed from society. And there's a line right in the middle of it that basically says, and the, the, the narrator is basically talking to us, uh, the reader. Okay. And the, the narrator asks, does this disturb you? Uh, and then goes further to elucidate how, from their point of view, this is precisely the right thing. Uh, that the collective is the most important part. And when an individual starts to think that they are more important than the collective, that's damaging. And so the collective takes care of it. And not in a Borg kind of way. It was a very human kind of way. It was, it was really well written. And so here I am watching this episode. And pretty much from the start, through to the end, I was 100% consumed with this story. I was completely engaged. And I wasn't thinking about shots or angles. I wasn't thinking about uh, lenses. I wasn't thinking about anything that is done to uh, create this story. I was just thinking about the story. I was just thinking about the ideas that were being presented to me. And additionally, I was finding myself... Uh, emotionally on the kind of opposite end of where this story assumed I would be. The story was telling the, was, uh, it is completely possible that, that, uh, Heather was telling the story in a way that, uh, uh, allows for a person like me to engage it on the other end of this idea. But it did feel right. like it was written from the one idea of, of uh, the the obvious correctness of our own definition about what children should be doing at a particular age, um, and so everything was kind of set up, uh, saying, "Isn't it interesting that this culture views it very differently, and it's done very respectfully, and it's done in a position that that exposits their thinking, and it's very good, but it is constantly coming back to the notion of and." thank goodness they are also enlightened enough to accept our definition of best. And so I'm, I'm loving this thing because, and then there's also a lot of subtle stuff, which I'm picking up and I'm pretty sure it wasn't intended to be written in there. And I respect it. If somebody says I'm reading too much into it, but I tell you what I stand, I stand on my little soapbox and say, I'm not reading too much into it. I think this is great because I was seeing, uh, um, a story that was written in an era where, uh, cultural differences being valued, but there was still a preeminence for one. There was still imperialism of culture. There was still the notion that the SGC, the the you know, the, the, our heroes represent the right way to think about it. I was noticing aspects of ageism in there, where it's you know, isn't it a marvel that these children are able to do what they're able to do because children aren't able to do this like flat out? Um, I was seeing issues of sexism. Of where uh, trust the old man here in this situation, he knows what's right. Uh, and even though it's all done gently and it's done from a position where we know he's the good guy, um, but there is still that element of, and therefore he is correct. Uh, and they all resolve in a manner which I say technically doesn't age well, and I'll explain that in a little bit. But it was such a 
perfect encapsulation of a cultural bias that is 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 just almost saturated within how we like to think about culture society etc such that we are uh presented with a group of people that are different than us and you know i mean like uh i can't remember the character's name says right there in the middle you know you claim to know want to know more but then when you're presented with something that's different you require that we change and of course that was a central theme with it that was the point of this episode i just was just completely uh um i was about to say gleefully but you know i mean okay that's technically true i was very happy after it was all said and done to have gone through this story and this emotional, uh, these lines of thinking and this, this, these ponderances and talk and thinking about this thing from a philosophical and a sociological and from a a pedagogical and from a curricular uh, point of view. Um, And I was surprised at how uh, emotional I was getting with a lot of the story arcs. And I was Mm -hmm. surprised with uh, myself when I was looking at things like, you know, um, what is basically Jack kidnapping somebody and taking her because he knows best. And I'm sitting here like, uh, Jack's the good guy here. And so I know that this is going to be uh, something that is safe, but he's behaving badly. Good people don't take kids. Like, they don't do that. Uh, they, don't, they, don't, they don't say, I, I know what's best here for you, kiddo. Uh, they don't, uh, uh, you know, when... when they do in the nineties, <laughs> like you know, well, they 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 would do that then. I, I, the, I will I will pause you right there, Brent. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to defend Jack just a little bit here. Yeah, uh, and and play because Jack is being preeminently Jack, and it's not that he's I know best for you so much as I can't see children being harmed, and he sees this. Who as says she harm. was being? Who says she was being harmed? Well, okay. So here's what it is. Uh, remember, Jack has a son who was killed, who's probably about the age Marin is. He is not operating uh, in his head. He's operating in his heart. What he's seeing is, here's a girl that, that uh, is not, getting, uh, not going to be able to receive uh, the experiences of growing up of, of being a kid, of having fun. I mean, for, for O'Neill, in order to be human, you have to have a certain element of fun. And, I mean, and what he's seeing is that, is that she is being denied any humanity in there. Um, and he also recognizes fully what he's doing um, because he is totally willing to accept whatever punishment comes his way. It turns out that that uh, no punishment comes, but he is willing to, you know, if you want to court-martial me for doing this, I'm doing what I believe is right. Um, uh, you know, you can make the argument whether or not it was or wasn't right, but, uh, you know, he is operating um, purely from, from a consistent standpoint within who he is. He's trying to get this character to experience uh, what it means to to have fun, and he's sensitive to to children in general because his child didn't get that. We saw this so, when he was dealing with Charlie, uh, the Ritu boy. What mattered right. most was that he would grow up. So, and that long pause was me trying to think about that story. If there was anything 
about that that um, is a direct parallel to this story that kind of repudiates what I'm about to go into. And I can't think of anything. So that's really me just not remembering that, that okay. story quite that well. But <clears throat> um, Jack, uh, Jack doing the father knows best thing. Uh, uh, basically told Marin that she didn't know what she was talking about. And uh, that is a fine line when you're dealing with education. Because obviously, the whole point of learning, teaching and learning, is is predicated on the assumption that there is a person in the room who knows more than another person in the room. And the person who knows more is going to find methods to let the person who doesn't know more, know more. Um, and that information exchange is why schools exist. And obviously the story was basically saying, you know what, let's, let's change the scene a little. Let's get out of the SGC. Let's get into a school. Let's let the 11 year old be an 11 year old. And my soapbox is saying she was an 11 year old. She was an, uh, uh, what's the speed? What's the Orbanian. Uh, or- Orban? Orbanian. She was being an Orbanian 11 year old, not an American 11 year old, but we're sitting here going, Oh my gosh, that's so wrong here. Come on over here. Come to the playground. You know, go have a have a ball tossed at you. Come over here and let's let's go through a scene, which was wonderful, Zach. I'm not kidding. This thing was great. The scene where, you know, like the whole thing, I'm sorry, the whole thing was great. But it was great for me because I'm watching the scene go on and it's like it's like, do this thing. I don't understand what you're talking about. No, do do this thing. What what do you what do you mean? And it resolves in a way of, ah, wouldn't you know it? Uh uh, Jack's way of doing things was the right thing. You know, and I'm saying... You know what? That... I'm going to argue with that one. Sure. Um, because um, because the Orbanians do not change what they do with the Uron. The Uron still, at two years old, or at infancy, still get a bazillion nanites. That's right. Um, you know, their culture has not was not radically um altered or at least i mean it was affected but but they still do what they do but now they're mm-hmm. doing something additional uh they're seeing uh one of the things that's really neat about this is that the orbanians don't don't change who they are at their core but they mm-hmm. they see something that actually is valuable uh you know, yeah, but what? But what was the thing that they found was valuable? Uh, what? Well, I, I think they they found um, that that there there was something valuable in the Uron uh, after the Averium, and that these these children um, did not have to be outside the society, but could be brought back into the society after that point, and. Uh, we don't see the result of this. Uh, I mean, it, it's a little bit, I'm a little bit scared what happens to them because they still don't really fully understand what we mean when we say education. Um, mm-hmm. They only have one girl's one day experience of painting. Um, but uh, let, let's just assume that this is um, positive and, and, and uh, they, they can extrapolate and figure things out. 
think about how that society could potentially be um, advanced sociologically, at least, um, because they recognize that there is something valuable in the way Earth humans do it, that Orbanian humans don't do it, but they but could be added to it. And so now they're adding something new that has great has potential value for them over and against just assuming that the Urons, the Uron children are uh are useless, you know. Uh there there's more to them than than giving up their nanites and being done. Um and I see that as as a tremendous growth. Uh, in in the Orbanians, and I guess my question for us would be, uh, in what ways can we step outside of ourselves and look at other cultures sociologically and see where they may do things differently than we do, even if it seems ridiculously odd and perhaps perhaps at odds with how I do it, but can we look at those societies and find something that is valuable for us, not one that radically changes us to be them, but something in them that helps us to be who we are more. And my push against that is we were shown that in this episode, we were shown that perhaps the thing that we need to do is to adopt the Ordanian Ordanian technology aspect of nanite technology and put it into our infants and let them grow up for 12 years specializing in a subject and disseminate that knowledge across the world. But we said that's wrong. Why did we say that's wrong? And so when you say that they have, that the Urbanians have adopted an element of, that they have remained true to themselves and they have adopted one of our, one of our aspects to better themselves, uh, in my opinion, that's cultural sleight of hand. That's saying, oh, and by the way, it's obvious that our way is the best way. And wouldn't you know it, they've adopted it too. But why not the other way around? Now, pause, because I think it's important to say at a meta level right now, this is exactly the thing that I loved about this episode. It got me thinking along these lines. I love thinking along these lines. I'm not actually saying it's a good idea to be uh, shoving nanites inside babies' heads and have them learn something for 12 years only to become a vegetable. That is not my position. I am saying the way that the story was told got me thinking along these cultural and sociological lines in a way that made me also see how there was a bias through the whole thing that said, ultimately what they're going to do is they're going to choose our way because ultimately our way is the best way. And it's, it's, it, was, it was a delightful way to go through that whole thought process and engage with that whole line of thinking in a way that got me wanting to have a conversation with you about this, exactly like this, to take the position that says, isn't it curious that when we were telling this story, we were presuming that our way was the best way. And even though you were saying things like, you know, actually, they weren't really adopting 100% our, our way, and I hear you and I agree with it, my position is saying, even when they adopted 1% of our way and we adopted 0% of their way, uh, okay, stick a pin in that. All I have seen is that we have adopted 0% of their way. I'll acknowledge that. Uh, but the point is, when the story resolved, when we got to the end where we're feeling happy because there's Marin, and she's not exactly who she was, but she's still there, and there's that connection that she and Jack had, which we kind of liked having, there it is kind of starting to get rekindled, and there she is just having a little bit of fun. 
the end. That's supposed to be a heartwarming moment. And most everybody who has watched this episode has gone, yeah, that feels right. That feels good. And I'm sitting here going, isn't it interesting that we presume that that has to be the way that it is that it feels good, as opposed to the other way, which is what why why would we not allow the Orbanians to have the total fruition of their cultural competencies and their decision-making? Why can we not allow them to be self-directed? They have decided that this is the way they want to do it. And the well, kids themselves I'm, I'm are gonna, like, gonna, I want to do it that way. I'm going to push back on you on that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, because ultimately, that's where they fall. The um, when, when Daniel realizes what's going on, what's at stake with Marin, he says, I didn't know that. And he takes... Uh, Caitlin back to the SGC, talks with Hammond. Hammond says, look, before you say anything else, Jack, I have already granted this. Mm-hmm. This is going to happen. Uh, at that point in time, uh, Hammond, and, at least Hammond and uh, Jackson have both, uh, representing the SGC, have said that uh, their society is what it is. We can't change that. This is who they are, and this is what they need. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'll push back a little bit in a slightly different direction in that the way they do that is severely technologically oriented, and uh, it would be impractical, if not impossible, for it to go the other way. Uh, We didn't have that conversation, I'll grant you that. It would be a rather difficult conversation to have, which we didn't do, but it's a, a moot point because since we don't have nanites, we can't train our children our culture, the way they do. Also, since the SGC is secret, and only Mm -hmm. a portion of one culture, one uh, country amongst uh, dozens of Mm countries, how many countries, anyway. Hundred something, yeah. You know, uh, the the practicality of that uh, is taken off the table. It's it's not feasible. Now, Mm, your your hypothetical conversation about... uh, the, the assumption that, that uh, the transfer of information of, of, quote, what is right going only one way, um, okay, I hear that in, in theory. I would say in practice here, uh, their way of training children and society is, physio- is technologically not possible for us. It might be possible in the future. It is not possible for us now. And so you take that off the table. We can't train our society the way they do because we don't have that technology. Also, but I think. Go ahead. Also, um, when when uh, uh, Kalen and Marin go back to Orban, the assumption from the SGC's side of things is that's the end of the story. It's sad, mm-hmm. uh, but that's the end of the story, and it's not. Uh, Earth forcing their ideas on the Orbanians. Now, uh, it, it, is, it is, in fact, Earth letting go. It's the SGC saying, okay, you can be you. I'm still going to be me. You be you over there. Mm-hmm. Then what you see is the Orbanians internally, after having that experience, deciding that they want to do something more. That's not so, on us. So I'm separating the Stargate universe from the real life universe when I'm making this critique. Real people wrote this story. 
So it's not a criticism about what the fake SGC did. It's a criticism of what the real life people who wrote the story did. And it's not a criticism that's saying this is garbage. The exact opposite. I am saying, oh my gosh, this is brilliant stuff. It's brilliant because it's thought provoking. And yeah, I'm probably that person that is choosing to read a lot into it beyond what it was intended. Um, Side note that I think is the absolute glory of art in that when it's released, it then takes a life of its own. It starts to uh, interact with people where they are at their time and in ways that the creator had no idea was going to happen. And it just it, it just starts tumbling along and doing things. It's 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 one of the best parts about it. The the decision. So in universe, the decision making matrix made perfect sense. Um, everybody's actions was 100% believable. Every single motivation was right on down the line. Not a single moment in this entire story did I say to myself, well, that's a little unrealistic. It was right down the line, perfectly understandable, including the resolution. Like the whole thing was exactly believable. The, the, the payout at the end, Brent would have been happier watching this episode if at the end they completely did not integrate the educational experience of Marin. I would have been happier as a viewer of this story if they had completely rejected 100% of, of the culture that was being introduced. And that's a very interesting thing for me to say because it's it's peculiar because I got there because of how the story was constructed and not in the bad way, in the great way. It like I I am the person that wants to see self-determination for a culture like I want to see the Urbanians be them, not us. And so I completely hear you and I completely understand. And again, the decision that was made in universe made perfect sense. She experiences something. She enjoys it. Her eyes are opened. It's transformative. She comes back to her culture. That transformation is then passed along her entire culture group. And now everybody understands the value of it because of the very technology that they were using in order to do a thing that we thought was abhorrent. Like that is a fantastic detail, rich, thoughtful, perfectly consistent uh, story thread. Like, that's wonderful. Hmm. And also, I am holding these two ideas almost in opposition to each other. The idea of the way that we told this story is interesting to me because it presumes that there is there is an ultimately right version of how this thing should go, and it resolved that way. And that alone is curious and interesting to me. and. And again, I'm, I'm right back to the whole thing of like, this episode is very, very good in part because it's getting you, Zach, and me, Brent, to talk deeply about these ideas yeah. in a short amount of time and in a way that, well, because, you know, you and I do this, you and I are able to take different positions and, 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 and converse constructively because of who we are and et cetera, et cetera. And also we're really good friends, but you know what I'm saying? Like, this is a great conversation. Yeah. This so, is really so interesting. Here, here, I think... I'm going to I'm going to push back on you a little bit Brent mm-hmm. cuz I think that that what we can learn as a society here mm-hmm. as we watch the the this episode play out 
And as we explore what does it mean for us to be sociological creatures Mm -hmm. and have a culture of our own and interact with other societies that do things radically different. Um, One of the one of the uh, hot button topics today um, would happen to be in uh, Afghanistan right now. Mm -hmm. We are dealing Mm -hmm. with the Taliban. The Taliban Mm -hmm. wants a Sharia law government. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, we don't. Mm-hmm. Okay, that that you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, there there there's that cultural difference, and and one of the things that I see this episode inviting us to, uh, certainly by no means forcing us into it, or or even saying it's a requirement, but inviting us to look at what can we uh, can we respect each other, mm-hmm. which is. Uh, and and I can't force you to respect me. All I can do is respect you myself. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's all. I, all I can do is. And when you point out that, hey, Zach, you are not being respectful for me, which is what Kalen does to uh, Daniel. Mm-hmm. Daniel's mm-hmm. like, oh, mm-hmm. okay. Let me mm-hmm. let me pull back and not change my point of view to be yours, but can I see things from your point of view? This is the beauty of what Daniel does in this episode. He's got a very mm-hmm. small part, relatively speaking, but he does this, and, and that's an invitation to us to participate in that. And then as the episode progresses, it becomes an invitation to, frankly, follow the Orbanian way of doing things over and against the human way of doing things and say, can we interact with other people in a way and potentially find where their way of doing things can enhance how we do things. Not to become them. Not to change who we are to fit them. But can we incorporate some of who they are into who I am so that I can be better at being who I am? Mm -hmm. That's the invitation of this episode. And if we ended the way you suggest without mm-hmm. any transformation in the Orbanians, we lose that invitation altogether. Mm, no, we never lost the invitation. We lost the resolution. Well, but see, that's the whole point of especially 90s television. Yes. Uh, all right, you have to give a question and then offer a resolution. Um, there, there is that sense. See, here's the thing is that mm-hmm. for most of us, when we are confronted with the possibility of, of adding to from somebody else to hopefully make myself better or mm-hmm. not, uh, that is incredibly scary on a cultural level. This is why we go to war, in part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what this episode does, and if it would be, and, and this is why we need the resolution in our fiction. Because the resolution invites us to take that step and say, hey, wait a second. In the resolution in this story, uh, it, the, there's value in the risk of trying something new. And if you don't have that, the, the invitation by itself without the carrot out there saying, hey, look, this actually can happen. Uh, I would argue the the human experience that I've noted as I've looked mm-hmm. at this world uh, would never jump onto that. Would never willingly try to incorporate something else from someone else into myself to make me more than what I am. Not mm-hmm. not different, but but better at being me. I would not take that step if there wasn't something in there that said the hope, the possibility for it exists. And that's mm-hmm. what this episode does.
I still feel like I'm positing an idea that is that is almost meta to what we're talking about right here in this in this particular engagement, okay. which is which is you are saying that um, a defining aspect of the human experience is to amongst through a myriad of engagements and 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 through a myriad of emotions. Uh, a quintessential aspect of humanity is to engage with what it does not know and learn from it to 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 harness aspects about that unknown and integrate that into the human experience for the betterment of humanity. At least I think that's what basically if I had to kind of encapsulate it into a sentence, I, there's more I, detail I, than that. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't argue with that. Uh, that that right. sounds reasonable. And I'm saying Every time that we engage with something that is different, we pass it through a filter of acceptability. We pass it through something that says, this is right and this is wrong. And I think that you bringing up, uh, as, as much of a hot button topic as it is, you bringing up the Taliban is a perfect example. There are a myriad of aspects about that culture that I find wrong and that a lot of people find wrong. And there are a lot of people inside that culture who find those very same aspects to be right. Now, it'll be a 45-minute conversation about talking about why we find it right and wrong, so I'm not going to really get too deep into that part. But suffice it to say, there's a group of people that find it right and a group of people that find it wrong. I'm in the category of people who find it wrong. I am a person who allows for the possibility that 3,000 years into our future, we could have societies that look much more like the Taliban than me. And I would not be at home in that society 3,000 years from now. And when the vast majority of people in that 3,000-year dystopia find those aspects right, then culturally speaking, that's the filter that starts getting used, that they are the ones that view that as right and wrong. And so here we are back to the present and back to this story. We are looking at a culture that's different from us and we are seeing what they are doing and we are saying that is wrong. And we then are able to adjust a little and say, we think that's wrong, but we're going to let you do it. And the storytelling gives the viewer a little bit of an emotional release by saying, hey, wouldn't you know it? They're doing it their way, but you know what they're coming around to? Our way. And that, that aspect, it's a very, very small but important aspect of how this story got told is the juicy part for me. That little sliver of interpretation for Brent is a very meaty little nugget that kind of slips under doesn't really get seen very well because it, the story really wasn't about that that's me taking this thing and going oh holding it up and going now i find this part interesting and uh, dot 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 i think that was kind of it it's that <laughs> it's that i'm kind of pulling this little part out and saying i recognize that this is controversial i recognize that me pulling this little part out and holding it up and going look at this 
Uh, isn't it curious that this is the thing that we're using to define, like just 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 how the story was constructed and told? This is a this is a piece of it. And then if this is a piece of this story, what does that tell me about me? And then I am pushing it further by saying, what does that tell me about us? And then I'm pushing it further still and saying, I'm finding it so interesting that I am now bringing it to the fore of everybody that's listening to this and saying, what does this tell us about us? And uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was just, so, so I guess my, my question is, for me, as I watch this episode, um, I think I, I kind of described where, where I find my learning, where I find mm-hmm. my growth edge. Um, how, can, how can I... Uh, examine other cultures and uh, see in the midst of what is um, strange and unusual and potentially even deplorable Mm -hmm. uh, from my point of view and see how does that operate in their society um, and is there potential value in there uh, if for them if not for me Uh, Mm -hmm. and then ask the question is is there something in that a uh, set of things that is their cultural way of doing things that might be valuable to make me be me better. Mm-hmm. That's what this episode invites me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the way this episode ends, it, it invites me to risk that process because um, uh there, there, there is, is hope on the other side of that thing. Um, I think it doesn't take long. Uh, I mean, finally, there, there is a moment in, in this episode where Marin begins to recognize precisely what uh, Jack is trying to do. And she mm-hmm. rejects Jack's supposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Jack is being as, as, as naturally Jack as Jack can be. Um, mm-hmm. But she rejects that. And she goes then... To, uh, if we don't know this, uh, we don't know if she had any fear of the Avarium prior to that. If she did, she walks away from the Jack experience with less fear for it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because I think she is astute enough and aware enough to know that her experience with Jack is not going to change her society, but it is going to change her society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so that's the invitation of this episode. And you and I are kind of approaching it from different angles. And so I mm-hmm. would ask you, what is it that this episode is challenging you, Brent, to do? Hmm. <laughs> this is why I love talking with you about this stuff. Um, good point. You are absolutely correct in calling me out by saying, Brent, you're kind of approaching this thing from a, uh, from, uh, I don't know, omniscient is a word that popped into my head, but like, uh, I'm approaching this as if I know best. Brent is approaching this as if Brent knows best, right? Which is precisely what you yelled at them for doing. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. And believe you me, the irony is delicious. It's, <laughs> I love this stuff. This is great. Mental grist. It's just awesome. I love doing this stuff. Um, yes. Uh, 
that's a good question because I have not yet processed this episode in that lens. I have not yet actually gone through and thought through the whole thing in the lens of, okay, what is this challenging me to do? I have been only engaging this episode. Again, confession, I watched it first thing this morning. Um, I've only been processing this episode in the frame of, I know I'm going to take a controversial view on this thing. How do I defend it? The controversial view. How do I defend the controversial view? And uh, so that has been my entire thought process up until getting getting on the microphone and starting to talk about this thing. So I absolutely delight in the pushback and the challenge to go back and think through this thing one more time and now think about it in the lens of what is this story telling me about what I should be doing differently, which I haven't thought through yet. Fair enough. Like, uh, I, I um, want to start hazarding guesses, but... Um, um, well, you know what? Minimally, what it's what uh, what it's doing is that it is providing the conversation between you and I that is at its base saying, let's go through it one more time. But this time, let's use a different lens and look at it. Right. Like, let's 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 take some different assumptions. Now, let's so I took the position of, uh, you know, stompy, stompy Americans being stompy, stompy. Now, let's take from the position of Orbanians being a little stompy, stompy. And, you know, what could possibly be, uh, you know, uh, you know, how could I envision their situation in their society as actually truly becoming better when they adopt some of these uh, some of these aspects of humanity that we think are core and essential? And uh, I'm gonna be a, just a right jerk and glance at the clock and say, unfortunately, we're probably gonna have to wrap this up because I got to get going. Yep. And also related, I also delight in conversations that don't actually resolve, like. You and me having this conversation, there isn't, we, we aren't at a spot where both of us are like, yes, and there we go, tidy bow. Oh, no. I have, th- and frankly, I have things it to would think about. To, to, to uh, dig against my own sense of opinion, you know, it's like, I actually am I'm fine with, with not having a tidy bow, despite the fact that I argued that the whole point of this episode is that we needed the tidy bow at the end. Well, but you but you might be right on both counts in that in the point of a show and a story and a television in an episode, tidy bows are great. Tidy bows are welcome. Tidy bows are easy ways for people to really engage with the story. I'm a person that likes untidiness, but not everybody's like me. Yeah. And so if most people watch this and it didn't resolve in a way, if it didn't resolve, I would be sitting here going, Woohoo! It didn't resolve. And most other people be like, What are you going on about there, yeah. guy? No, like, no, I would argue is that is that the resolution, as we are calling it, is not actually so much a resolution, but as but actually an invitation yes, to action. Better um, said. And and so yes. so to you know, to have I mean, so in my line of work, I am constantly asked the question, so what? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really tough for me because I'm an academic and I'm perfectly fine just chewing on it and saying, oh, well, this was kind of neat. It took me on mm-hmm. a trip from over here to over there to over there to over mm-hmm. there. And now I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm back where I started, but a little bit different. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and then people are like, oh, that was wonderful. So what? What does that mean? What does it matter? Who cares? And yep. that's what this tail end, I think, does. And if you don't have that, all you have is the academic running around in a circle. Mm, good point. All right. You're right. I agree. So we could continue to talk about this. We can't because we're running out of time. And yes. so this is when I say, Brent, learning curve. Mm-hmm. Out of seven chevrons, how many chevrons does it get? I'll be brief. I think that this was a perfect story 
told in a perfect way, acted in a perfect manner, shot perfectly, paced perfectly. It got me talking to my very good friend for over an hour about something, well, maybe not, but whatever, for a long time about something that is completely just invigorating. This, and it was encapsulated in one episode, it could go on, the chapter is open, we might see them again, we might see them evolve, I don't know, but I am intrigued. This episode is absolutely seven out of seven chevrons for me. This thing was perfect television. Absolutely perfect. Seven out of seven. All right. Seven out of seven. I will be uh, hopefully equally brief. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> as I watch this episode, I have always enjoyed this episode. I've always loved this episode. I thought this was a great episode from the very beginning of things. I rewatched it last night. And I'm like, this is a great episode. And I began to think to myself, what do I give this? Where mm-hmm. does this fall? And I was thinking, uh, this is probably a six or so. Uh, this is a really mm-hmm. solid episode. But... I think that our conversation has been absolutely delightful. I have Mm -hmm. loved it. It has uh, given me a chance to really dig into this episode in a way that I haven't before, um, mostly because I didn't have anybody to uh, chew on this with as this. Uh, And so with all of that, I am going to follow your lead and give this a perfect seven out of seven. This is a great episode and seriously was so worth good watching for oh, all of us i would absolutely uh recommend that a person if, if a person only watches one I, who knows what i'll say at the end of the series but if the person only watches one episode like this one is just so good it's i think so good yeah, this episode is is valuable entertainment and it's a good story and you could take this episode out of the universe and just watch this episode apart with not knowing anything else and mm-hmm. you would follow the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, so good. So I'm, I'm excited to see that. Uh, what's her name? Catherine Ash. A- Heather Ash. Heather Ash is writing four more. Yep. Apparently we've got so a couple more this them. season and a couple more in four, like one more in four and one more in five or something like that. So I'm going to hijack our show a little bit, Zach. Okay. Normally at this time, I do a little funny funny and try to do what the next episode is going to be. I mean, I'm literally counting down like the minutes before I'm going to have to get scooting here. Yep. Also, it feels a little irreverent given the conversation that we had to be all like, all right, now it's time for Hambone. <laughs> so that makes um, sense. maybe we just watch the promo. And again, David, you are uh, you are a god among men to be making this stuff. Um so, you know, I suggest that we just kind of dive into the thing and then, uh, you know, react a little bit and wrap this thing up. What do Sounds you think? Sounds good. Sounds good. So okay. the next episode is called Point of View. And here is our promo. Are you ready? I am almost ready. It's getting, it's thinking, oh boy. Okay, it is ready. All right, hit and go. Next time on Stargate SG-1. Familiar face. Hey, what? Mr. Samantha Carter from the SGA. This is Wait Major a minute, Kowalski. is this a parallel universe? We need to speak to your commander. Where's their goatees? That is up until yesterday. Just wait. Gould came and started taking over every major city from orbit and making slaves of the population. Oh, we wow. come from the Goulds just took over the world, Colonel. Is he talking about that alternate reality thing? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> But our reality may be killing them. Oh no! Oh. The only way to really help Dr. Carter is to stop the ghoul in her reality and save whatever's left. Uh-huh. Uh, but there's your goatee! Hey! 
Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! This is the best! Oh, Pop is with a goatee! <laughs> oh, that's awesome! All right, I'm excited for that one. There you go. So that's point yeah. of view, and we'll talk about that next time. Yes. Um, and I'm going to wrap this up real quick for you, Brent. Uh, tell us okay, what you think you. out there, folks. Uh, we had a great conversation. We argued and debated about the, the value of this episode and what it means and all of that stuff. So tell us what you think. Tell us where uh, we got it right. Yes. Tell us where we got it wrong. Tell us how you agree with Brent. Tell us how you agree with me. <laughs> tell us how you think both of us are absolutely off our rockers and there's yeah, a third totally option. Whatever it is, tell us what you think. Share your thoughts. Uh, email us at walkingthroughthestargate at gmail.com. I'm not going to have Brent say that fast. Uh, <laughs> Go Thank to <laughs> Twitter's at Stargate Walking. Find us on Facebook, Walking Through the Stargate, uh, our Facebook group, our Facebook page. Share your thoughts. This is a really meaty one and worthwhile yeah. to, to have yeah. a prolonged and engaged conversation uh, with it. And social media gives us that opportunity. So take advantage yeah. of that and run with it. Absolutely. And this is so good. This yep. was so good. Yep. <laughs> and so with that, uh, I'm Zach. And I'm Brent. And this has been Walking Through the Stargate. See you next time. Bye. Carter, dial it up. Get these people home.